Hello, I'm Alistair. And I'm Andrew. Welcome to Season 11, Episode 4 of Seen From Above, an informal podcast about the cool things happening in Earth observation. Check out seenfromabove.org for the podcast archive and show notes. Follow the show on Twitter via at EOSeenFrom and using the hashtag SeenFromAbove. In this episode, we talk about whether social media is good for EO. Okay, cool. Let's do the news then. Uh, 10th of November, 2021. (laughs) 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 Apologies. Things happen so quick, don't they, in in the world of Earth observation. And just today, Planet have bought a company, Vandersat. I wanted to mention, because we skipped, we didn't quite get there last time, Satellite View getting 15 million in Series A. And Josh from Sust Global, who we had on the podcast, what, yeah, that's right. 18 months ago, they raised 2.3 million as well. So there's a lot of capital investment, lots of acquisitions and mergers. And, and we're sort of, that's the direction we travel, isn't it, now with Earth observation? It's very fast paced, it seems to me. One thing I've noticed, and I don't know if this isn't a real observation or whether it's just something in my head, but it felt like maybe two years ago, three years ago, that a lot of the investment was into companies that were starting up in. Uh, Western Europe and in North America. And it certainly seems like recently, let's say the last, I don't know, three, four months, five months, that there's been a lot more substantial funding coming into companies in the UK. Like I say, I don't know if that can be backed up statistically, but that's, that's my feeling. Yeah, I'd agree with that. But you know, it, it felt to me 2016, 2017, that companies like Autel Insight and Descartes Labs were doing all the raising And it's less of them now and more Series A, the first push. I mean, one thing I would say is on the back of COP26, where there's all this talk about satellite data being used to monitor the development of countries and whether or not there's deforestation and everything else, it would be really nice to see some substantial Series A funding going to countries that we don't necessarily think of. So if there's any companies that are beginning to show promise in this area, in some of those countries that aren't the ones that we're always talking about here and and just generally in geospatial. I think it'd be really nice to try and get some, you know, some really decent funding behind them and grow a, a properly global funded industry that that's employing the best people wherever they are on the planet. Yeah. Okay. Um, Faster Downloads, a blog post by Noel from Google Earth Engine. We've mentioned this blog before, really interesting stuff, but this is talking about getting image chips like the small, small chunks of data. In fact, yes, he uses the term image chips in, in his um, blog. This is, it's interesting that this thing is interesting, I would say. Uh, okay. and it's almost an acknowledgement, again, of the difficulty in doing the deep learning within Earth Engine. And, you know, again, without going over the sort of rehashing what we've talked about before, that is how it works. You have to take the data out, um, whether to process it in the cloud or you know, do it on your systems or, or anything like that. So this is this is quite interesting. And it's not something that I personally would use, but I can definitely see this being very useful if you're into academic research and, and stuff like that. Quickly getting hold of all these tiles of, of image data, I can imagine being a huge time saver, not just accessing and processing it and getting it out to you, you know, downloading wise, but actually getting the data ready. One of the core engineers of Google Earth Engine is writing a script and chucking it up on the web and saying, oh, this does this. If you're someone who uses Earth Engine, this is an amazing resource. It's just brilliant. I would 100% agree with that. And the key thing with Earth Engine is that you can share a link and then someone else can change it 
and then share it again. Yeah. Next up on my list of many things, <laughs> the world cover 10 meter data set gets released, kind of builds upon what we talked about last time with Steve. This is a ESA funded data set. And again, we have an Earth Engine app, which is fantastic. And you can compare the two, the two data sets. Clearly the resolution of, of this one and the breakdown of, of classes is, is superior. Uh, I, I think that would be a fair thing to say. Whether it's going to come down the pipeline again, how much processing it, it took compared to the other one, uh, all this kind of stuff. It's, sometimes it's not as easy to compare apples with apples, but it is another phenomenal step forward. This is a big release for me, sir. I mean, the amount of effort that's gone into creating this must have been huge. But I, I think um, the app that you point to, the uh, Earth Engine app that compares the two, is really interesting in itself as well. Because I guess it's a really good demonstration of needing to understand what it is you're trying to do and choosing the correct data set in order to do that. Because each of the data sets, the Esri 2020 land cover and the ESA 10 meter will cover, both have their pros and their cons. I don't feel that one can just look at them and go, oh, that's better than that one. I think... Really, you need to understand what it is you're trying to look at. That said, I think the fidelity of the uh, spatial resolution that's being used with the ESA product is amazing. And and it really demonstrates the quality of having 10 meter data coming from uh, the Sentinel satellite. I think you describe that very well. (laughs) Fidelity, like it. (laughs) This is useful as it stands, but it would be even more improved if it became an annual product or maybe every two years, something like that. I certainly like the fact that when we were talking to Steve, he was already talking about the fact that their land cover map is going to get updated uh, and, and time series for that is going to be generated. One thing I would ask is that we agree on colors for, for different classes. <laughs> I mean, we don't have to use the same classes, but my God, it, Things like in one, you've got grass in green, but in the other, grass is in yellow. But you've got crops in almost yellow in the other one, uh, whereas crops are pink in the in the first one. And it's just it would be so nice to be able to compare visually in a much more um, simplistic way. My last two things in the first case, high resolution Dems. So this is from NASA and the promise of a I think it's a two meter elevation model but i think it's only available to u.s federal employees u.s contractors and u.s government funded researchers so not fully available to us all but it's the promise or the hope that the earth dem project starts delivering these kind of elevation models worldwide to to be used commercially and and be used by anybody well you're getting into the realms of lidar aren't you yes yeah two meters is probably good enough And my final thing. (laughs) It's all about me, isn't it? Um, I think it was a paper in Nature um, about a global inventor, in fact, of commercial, industrial and utility scale photovoltaic solar generating units. Easy for me to say all those those words. But I I think I was most drawn to the um, GitHub page, as, as I often am, you know, to have a look at the code. Thank you so much to the authors for creating this repo this really helps some, someone like me look at the um, process and the outputs and stuff and it's quite interesting and it sort of basically it, it, you know supplies the model that they've used and, and how they've done it and examples and all, all this kind of stuff just gonna say i do like a good 
GitHub README page. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this, this is amazing. It's really good. Like you say, it steps through everything, steps through, through the results, and it steps through the method, and it lays out the, um, the, the repo itself and says what's in what directory, etc. cetera. Uh, my initial thought was, this is a really cool technical step forward. But really, what would be super interesting is to understand maybe whether this has been done over time or whether it's going to be worked up again in order to get that sort of idea of the growth in PV energy capacity. Yeah, I definitely think in in the light of everything that's come from COP26 that we're going to be needing tools like this that can help understand what is actually being done practically on the ground to try and mitigate some of the emissions problems that we have. It's a trend, isn't it, towards global data sets. The acknowledgement that we've now got the ability to produce global data sets. Okay, so I've I've just got a a few small things to talk about. GDAL 3.4.0 has been released and is out now. So if you're the sort of person who likes updating to the latest version of GDAL, then go for it. The time is right. And then the other thing I wanted to just highlight people's attention to in case they hadn't seen it is a really interesting discussion that's been going on on Twitter asking about the differences between COGS and ZAR and TileDB. And it's it's really spawned a fascinating discussion about those three different formats. Interesting that people are asking which one should they choose. That's quite a high level question in a way, isn't it? TileDB comes out of it very well. Yes. It'll be an interesting one to watch. Yeah, my final one is, so we're recording this in the second week of COP26, and there's no way I can review all of the geospatial and Earth observation-related news related to COP26. Go look online if you want to find out anything about what people have been talking about. It seems like every single company in Earth observation has been putting out news clips and releases and, and what have you, and new products and new data. The only thing I really ask is that as an industry, we don't just monitor stuff, that we actually work with people who are going to make a difference on the ground to change things. Because if we become the industry that just monitors, then we're not fixing anything. All we're doing is watching something and pointing at it and saying somebody needs to fix this. Well, I think as an industry, if we have the ability to see what's going wrong, then we have the moral obligation to make links with people and uh, organizations who are actually going to make an impactful difference. And then we can say that we've pushed COP26 forward. Absolutely. And that's it for the news. Right, topic time. This time we're going to talk about social media and earth observation. And I guess this one sort of spawned out of something that I've banged on a little bit in the past. So th- this topic comes comes from me. And initially, it came from the idea that social media paints a very airbrushed view of the Earth observation world. I, having thought about it a bit more, I, I think it's part of a broader category of social media and EO. So there's this kind of sharing images, painting the Earth observation world as as cloud-free, beautiful pictures or um, showing animations from geostationary satellites. There's what the uh, social media has in terms of building and making um, communities. It's, you know, 
a huge part of what I do in a day, potentially. I look at social media and Twitter in particular to see what people are talking about. And then the third sort of strand is the role that social media can play within EO itself. So there's lots of examples of the idea of crowdfunding and when that, you know, when there's been a, uh, uh, like an event, like a hurricane, for example, we can't get good images, you know, using smartphones on the ground to to collaborate what 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 has been modelled or uh, potential impacts. So we can then feed and try and get as near time data in. And then the final part is this: what I've sort of loosely termed the social media paradox. Do you live in one social media account, or should you have one for work and one one for a personal one? If that's the case, then perhaps LinkedIn is is the best social media account if you believe that. But also, you know, harping back to the, the sort of first tranche because we're of such a visual sector is something like instagram the better tool for communicating what we do it's quite a big and broad topic and hopefully that sort of sets the scene of, of, of how i thought about this but when the ever given ship got stuck in the suez canal there was a rush of both optical and SAR satellite image companies to supply images showing this blocked ship in the canal, which was all great, but we already knew it was blocked. And it just felt to me a little bit disingenuous and, you know, the rush to be the first to show it. When you come across Earth observation in social media and you get that tweet and you see that satellite image capturing the ship, is that just, oh, that's nice. What are we trying to do with these images? Yeah, I guess there's two users of social media who are coming at a problem like that. One is usually a company, it could be an organization of any sort, but usually it's a company who's trying to basically say, look how great our data is. So it's either super timely because we were the first to post it on social media or it's very high resolution. And so they have a clear message, which is look at our data. I think then there's a second group who are the people that we tend to interact with a lot more on social media, who are users of the data, who are usually individuals. I mean, they're obviously working in in organizations, but they're usually individuals who are putting up information and imagery out of genuine interest to just tell the rest of us, look at this cool thing that we're working on that we've seen each of those has its own slant. So the organizations, yes, they're definitely going to be pushing an airbrushed EO message because they want non-EO people, and I guess in particular the news organizations, yep. to pick their data to be shown. And I think the real interest for the people who work in Earth Observation and probably the people who listen to this podcast, it comes from that group of social media users who are just posting up the stuff that they've done. So I don't know whether you agree with that. I do agree with that. I also think that sometimes the image is more powerful than the data that comes back. I don't know if I ever get bored of seeing beautiful images acquired by sensors and, you know, Landsat 7's just sent down a few, a few images now, or certainly social media is the first place I've became aware of them being seen. Mm. And Landsat think, 9, do you mean? Sorry, Landsat 9. <laughs> <laughs> what you I stuck into it 2001 <laughs> um Landsat 9 has sent down some <laughs> sent down some beautiful images it, it's social media that conveys that information to me and they haven't sent back a load of cloudy images where you can barely pick out a, a tree you, you, yeah. you know they've they've you know they've been cherry picked when when you get pictures like that shared I don't mean Landsat 9 I just mean generally shared 
you're part of that narrative that the data is easy that it's clear that it's highly processed that it's quick is that the message that we want to be giving if we are pushing the message that you can create these cloud-free images and from vast amounts of data relatively quickly then are more and more people going to get interested in that and they're going to learn how to do that or do we end up just creating small groups of people who can do that and everyone else is looking slightly enviously at them going, oh, I wish I, I had the ability to do that and the, the funding and everything else. So satellite images can potentially mislead and you can do a lot of damage when you start misleading with data like that. But generally speaking, it's a thing for the good. But I, I do think the race to show the picture of the boat is a, a little bit frustrating. So moving on to the sort of second branch, without Twitter, I wouldn't have the connections to many people within the industry. Yes, there is there is noise, but it's a great way to get news. The Earth Observation community, I've never had anything other than a really pleasant time interacting with people. I don't think community building is there yet, but I think it is the most promising place for community building for people in the Earth Observation sphere. One of the things I really like about the use of social media by the Earth Observation community is the fact that a whole array of sub-communities comes out of that. And as far as I'm aware, nobody raises any issue with the fact that those sub-communities become a thing. In particular, people are welcomed if they want to do something. I, I think this is one of the things that I've always held in my head is that when people say that, oh, I'm not sure if I should have done X or Y, it's like, well, you're doing something. So that's brilliant. You should definitely carry on doing it. Usually what happens is that there's a whole host of people who are also thinking, oh, wouldn't it be great if X or Y was being done, but they're not doing it. You are. It's really great that social media can pull together all of this knowledge from around the world and potentially cross geographies and languages. I mean, we do end up in, in bubbles where yeah. we're sort of from one location generally or speaking one language, but I, I don't know. There, there is the potential that it could become more diverse, but I'm definitely the wrong person to be talking about the, the impact of diversity. I think more needs to be done on that. Well, without Twitter, we wouldn't have the Ladies of Landsat or the Sisters of SAR or countless other groups. Maybe we need more online interactions. And I, I really think that it's a useful tool in the Earth observation world. I was going to say, oh, but how do you know which community to become part of? Should I be part of Twitter or there's a Discord server for Earth observation? There's another one for GIS. And now there's communities on Twitter, which is like a sub part of Twitter, I think. And there's um, Reddit and all sorts of other things. How do you know what to join? But actually thinking about it it doesn't really matter you join what you have the energy to join and you interact as much as you have the energy to interact the communities really build themselves from having a core of people i guess who put in the effort to curate the community and promote the community but after that they become sort of self-fulfilling if enough people think that the community is worth having then they will share into it it doesn't matter whether it's a community of 16 people or 16,000 people it all comes down to what the value is to you and how much energy you have to interact with it and put into it yeah, I'd agree with that. And it sort of brings us on to the kind of the fourth strand. How do you feel about having a personal Twitter account and a professional Twitter account? This is an interesting one um, for me personally. So when I started my Twitter account, AJG Jogger, 
that was, as the name implies, my work in inverted commas, Twitter account for me working as an independent. Now that I am working at Spark Geo, that has sort of defaulted to my personal Twitter account, but it still has the handle of my previous business. So I'm not really sure where I stand in that because a lot of my personal interests are beginning to change. So I'm much more interested in domestic renewable energy and things around that that are not related in any way to Earth observation. So that led me to think, well, should I have set up a separate Alistair Graham Twitter account and done everything through there, left the other one as a more professional one? I already manage the Eocenefrom account with you. I also have a couple of other Twitter accounts that I I'm involved in as well, as well as the work one for Smart Geo and obviously uh, AJG Jogger. So I don't really have the energy to create yet another one and keep on top of that. But it is, it's, a, it's a really tricky question because people have got to know me as someone who retweets Earth observation things. And more and more, I mean, I'll still be retweeting and tweeting about Earth observation, but more and more there's going to be political stuff or renewable stuff. And I personally don't know how that fits with that account. Uh, so how on earth anyone else is supposed to know how to read it? I don't know. <laughs> From my point of view, I don't, I don't have a personal Twitter account. I do feel a bit torn. But then the reason I use Twitter is because I want to know about the industry I'm working in. I've tried to not be political. And in some ways, that's a bit of a shame because the more people who see it like I do, the less you get to know the person. I've never thought anybody would be remotely interested in what I was having for tea or what my thoughts on the government were. We seem to always talk about the same types of company or the same types yeah. of people. And I think there's a real risk that certain accounts get inflated to be more important than they should be, but other accounts don't get a voice at all, or at least they don't get thrown out to ears that have, might not have heard them before. And I think that's really important, that we as a group on social media in Earth Observation don't just promote the same accounts again and again and again, and that we try and get as much breadth in terms of the discussion that's going on as we can and pull pull different accounts in from other places one of the things i really wish twitter did and maybe it does and i i just haven't found it is translate tweets yes and also i think that both you and me should try and look as wide as we can interestingly we've talked a lot about twitter but with all that being said that i've just said doesn't that make the case that linkedin is the perfect social media platform for what i want if i don't want to talk about politics if i don't want to talk about hobbies why is it that linkedin just totally feels not fit for purpose linkedin's a weird one I, i'm using it more and more at the back end of this year than i probably have for the last five or six years and part of me thinks it's really useful and part of me thinks that it's of absolutely no use at all. I now have a large number of followers, but I don't feel that I interact with those followers. Anything I post, I have no idea who it really goes to or who sees it. I don't feel there's a community on LinkedIn. I don't really use the groups. I'm a member of quite a few groups. I post information about the podcast into those groups. But again, I don't feel part of anything. I don't really understand what LinkedIn's supposed to be doing. I think LinkedIn could link quite nicely with Twitter. So, you, you know, you follow someone on Twitter and you think, oh, you know, where do they work? What, what's, what's been their working history? It seems to me in either a tool of before the event or way after the event. 
I certainly don't see that much in, in the way of technical information being shared from an Earth observation perspective on LinkedIn. I see companies telling me about what satellite they're building or have just launched. Have you got any thoughts on the other social media platforms? Facebook, personally, for me, that's an irrelevance in terms of Earth observation. Um, Instagram, I've never signed up to. In essence, it should be the one that is best suited because it's all about visuals. So you would think the Earth observation community would be huge on there. Reddit, I've only in passing come across that now and again. And it seems like there can be some good conversations on there. But again, I don't know what the community build is like. Now, I signed up for something this week, and it's called Spatial Node, and I think it's in very early stages. (laughs) The point of it is that rather than sharing your CV, it's more to demonstrate the types of projects that you've been working on. So it's a nice idea, and I hope that um, the person developing it takes it further and and builds on it. I've never been on Facebook. Instagram, I think, makes a lot of sense. But again, it harps back to my first point of we're just sharing beautiful images all the time, which has its place. I think Reddit asks the best questions. I really think that things like YouTube and I would predict that Twitch, I think someone will come along on that and take that on. I think there's an audience for that. Um, And finally, the role that social media can play of Earth observation itself, satellite imagery spotting emerging nuclear threats, for example. It's all about this kind of golden aim that we've got to fuse data the emergence of social media, pairing it with some satellite data, whether it be flooding or these events, is highly interesting and of a lot of value, it seems. There's a whole host of different ways in which social media and satellite data and other forms of Earth observation data will come together. The use of Earth observation for media and for investigative journalism, that sort of thing. Oh, uh, Bellingcat. Yes, so Bellingcat. And then there was a, another group as well um, called Geojournalism. So both of those do that type of work. And I think that's really important. Um, use of satellite imagery, but then using uh, social media either as a way of verifying things or getting the message out or sort of using the data in a timely way. So I think that's really critical. I think there's a, a huge role that social media can play within Earth observation and geospatial. I think this is a Quite a big topic, though, and much bigger than, you know, initially saying that social media paints a particularly airbrushed view of the EO world. I think it's something that is a conversation I'd love to keep having with people. So if you've got any thoughts about what we've talked about or what social media means for you or what you think about social media and Earth observation, do let us know on Twitter, (laughs) (laughs) our social media platform of choice, or maybe even LinkedIn or, or whatever it may be. Let's hear your thoughts as well. We encourage you to drop us a line through Twitter using at EOSceneFrom, where you can find a vibrant community based around the podcast. Thanks for listening, and that's it for now. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Alistair. Like you wouldn't buy a tap for a plumber. Why do you buy a book of satellite images for somebody who works in that? Anyway... Could ask you to pick up
Podcast music is Cracker Jacks and Tin Whistles by Ocean Heights and is licensed under the Attribution Non-Commercial Creative Commons license. Available on freemusicarchive.org.